This week's Quarter to Three Games podcast is brought to you by Age of Knighthood, the online RPG you can play in your browser. Choose from among classes like Fighter, Thief, or Mage. Adventure into perilous dungeons to fight classic enemies like goblins, orcs, spiders, and even dragons. Discover magical weapons, gold, and special knighthood tokens that you can trade for premium content. Add points to stats like strength, dexterity, and intelligence. Never pay a nickel as you advance your character all the way to level 200. All with state-of-the-art browser-based graphics and a soundtrack by acclaimed video game composer Peter Bohannon. Go to www.ageofknighthood.com. That's knighthood with a K. Enter the promo code QT3 when you register and they'll give you a pack of free resurrection potions. Or free pack of either way, it's free, folks. That's www.ageofknighthood.com. Listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast for, um, it's like over the hump in February, around about the 20th or so. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Shadow of the Colossus. And I'm Jason McMaster, and my game of the week is not 50 Cent Blood on the Sand, which is kind of a shame. Uh, and this is Derek Paxton, and my game of the week is not um, Wild Man, and that makes me very sad. Oh, but you know what? It can be maybe, maybe hopefully, with any luck, and we'll get into this, it can be your game of the week at some point in the future. I'm hopeful. Yeah. I'm hopeful. Uh, honestly, just to see uh, Chris Taylor keep making games and, and uh, putting out great stuff. So whatever he, whatever he produces, I'm first in line. Fingers crossed on that, and I'm guessing we're going to touch on that when it comes to news of the week. Uh, but first, that would be a spoiler, by the way. Uh, first, Derek, uh, you are here. Uh, you, by the way, have made one of uh, actually a couple of strategy games I really, really like. Um, and you're not done banging on your most recent strategy game. You can't keep your hands off of it. Uh, we've got an add-on on the way for uh, Fallen Enchantress, uh, and I want to talk with you uh, some specifics about that in just a moment. Uh, but first, I want to speak a little more generally about add-ons for strategy games. You know, what happens when you make a strategy game? It's presumably a self-contained box of cool toys that you use to interact with the world and you build units. Um, we can think more generally about real-time strategy games, but specifically I'd like to focus on turn-based strategy games for this discussion. What happens when you make something like that and then you come back later and you want to change it up? Uh, you know, isn't it a little difficult to get in there and, and mess with this cool self-contained system that you've made? Um, or does it maybe let you fix some things or, or overhaul them completely? Um, so does anything come to mind for you guys when I mention add-ons for turn-based strategy games? What are some great examples? Uh, in, any ideas from you guys? Because I have a couple in mind. Alpha Centauri. The, right? Uh, yeah, I can't remember the name of the actual. Oh come on, McGrath. Oh. I'm going to help you. I'm going to. I'm going to help you. Uh, I'm going to give you clues. Okay. It's a, C- a CNN show from the '90s with Ben Kingsley and Ed Novak. With with Ben Kingsley? No, no, no I'm sorry, Michael Kinsley. <laughs> Michael Kinsey. Good lord. <laughs> I didn't know Gandhi was on there. <laughs> I would have thought 
Novak. <laughs> and is is Edward? What's his first name? Robert Novak. Man, I'm I'm utterly backwards today. You know, I sat through that Sony press conference, and I think it knocked a lot of information out of my head. Um, yeah, I, I didn't watch. Okay, let me let me rephrase my my clue, Master. A CNN show in the '90s with Michael Kinsey. I think I got his name right, and Robert Novak. <laughs> Well, I, I think I remember it anyway. It's Alien Crossfire. I appreciate what you're going for there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you could have mentioned uh, the bald guy, too. What's his name? Wasn't he on there some? Pat Buchanan? Or, no, the Pat crazy. Buchanan, Pat Buchanan had a full head of hair as befits a presidential candidate. Uh, right, yeah, I don't know where you're going with that one. Uh, I meant the, the crazy, like, Cajun-sounding one. Oh, uh, James Carville, right. James Carville, yeah, I thought, yeah. Wasn't like, Tucker Carlson on there, too? And yeah, his, amazing, it's, his amazing bow tie. It did have a cavalcade of pundits. Yes, yeah, a cavalcade. So, of so Derek, are you familiar with uh, Alien Crossfire? Is that part of your your background as a strategy game designer? Absolutely. Yep, that's absolutely great. One also a big fan of uh, Beyond the Sword, of course, one of my favorite uh, expansions. And Gods and Kings is also a great one from uh, for Sit Five. Now I'm gonna. I know you probably want to be diplomatic, Derek, but I have to take issue with you on, on gods and kings. I can respect what they were trying to do. They felt like religion wasn't really as fleshed out in Civilization Five as it could have been, so that was one of their objectives. But I, I personally thought that gods and kings was kind of a, a, a worst case example of how to do an expansion in that it felt like it just added more stuff in terms of more tech trees and more information, more resources, uh, without the kind of careful consideration that I feel goes into things like Beyond the Sword or certainly Alien Crossfire. Um, but it was very popular. A lot of folks did like it. It was mentioned a lot on year-end lists uh, on the year that it came out. Um, what do you guys think of some of the things that Paradox does with their strategy game? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, they do a lot of actual strategy game mods now I think about it. But I feel like some of the stuff for like Crusaders, Kings, uh, Europa Universalis. Oh, wasn't there a new one for uh, Europa Universalis recently? Those, the, I think Europa Universalis 3 is the last one. If I'm not mistaken, there are, I think, three add-ons for that. Um, Paradox is a classic example of a developer who makes a strategy game and then continues to make it through add-ons after the fact. Like, right. I, I couldn't Imagine just playing, it's the sort of thing where you download an add-on, and you can't imagine just going back and playing the core version. It almost invalidates it. Sure. Uh, so it's sort of like they keep on designing after they're done. Uh, a house divided for Victoria 2. They just added um, Aztecs, I think, invading Europe in Crusader Kings. They, they have a crazy Aztec add-on for oh, Kings 2. I got one. I got one. How about uh, the Age of Empires 3 add-ons are pretty awesome. Yeah, real-time strategy games are, are a bit of a different beast, but yeah, some yeah. great examples of that. Yeah, Age of Empires 3, certainly Brood Wars is one of the most famous for, for StarCraft, the original sure. StarCraft. We've got Heart of the Swarm on the way. We'll see if Blizzard can sort of recapture that lightning in a bottle that was Brood yeah. Wars for the original StarCraft. With Star I've been practicing up on StarCraft 2, by the way. Uh-oh, okay, it's when on. It, when it comes out, oh, it's on. I felt like a gauntlet thrown down. Oh, oh it was. I'm here by picking it up, and I'm throwing it back in your face. That's all right, because I'm just going to – I'll destroy it. <laughs> uh, so I, I also briefly want to mention one that I have never played but that I am fascinated by and, and hope to spend some time with it. Uh, there was kind of a competing product with what you guys did with Fallen Enchantress, Derek, but they had a different uh, sort of more 
wargamey kind of military unit emphasis feel. There was a fantasy game called uh, Warlock. Um, and they released an add-on that basically, it was called Armageddon, and it basically added a zombie apocalypse to their game. Uh, it kind of changed up the structure of the game, where you're playing and you're playing, and I think uh, zombies come out, and they overrun the world, and you've got to stay alive as long as you can. Um, I, I haven't played that, but is there any game out there that wouldn't be made better with a zombie apocalypse? Well, really, I think that's the question. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, realistically. Uh, I thank you, Derek. I'm glad to hear you say that, Derek, because every now and then somebody, some hipster will come out and say, oh, zombies are played out. <laughs> I couldn't disagree more. Put zombies in everything, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, i kind of tired of seeing games based completely on zombies, but I love zombie modifications for games. Like yeah. t- taking the standard game and adding a zombie apocalypse. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. Uh, and, by yeah. the way... Go ahead, Dark. Sorry. So you give me a zombie apocalypse for my Sims game, then I would play all night. That would be awesome. Yep, for Sims, absolutely. yeah, that would be rad. Uh, so, so given that some of these that we've mentioned, some uh, add-ons for strategy games will completely revise the structure of the game, like Alien Crossfire adding these two powerful alien factions. Uh, some add-ons will kind of fill in gaps. Um, for instance, uh, Gods and Kings adding religion to Civilization V. Um, some of them, uh, they're not so much filling in gaps, things that might have been missing, but they're completely changing or revising systems, like the way that uh, I'm thinking of, of Paradox's add-ons. So given this, this sort of spectrum of how you can uh, change, do an expansion for a strategy game, Derek, how would you characterize legendary heroes for Fallen Enchantress uh, in that spectrum? Like, what kind of work are you guys doing there? Uh, I think um, smart companies release a game with a very specific focus on what they want to do, and then they release an expansion that adds content. I think the, the, the model is that they add content that helps go towards that point, and they fill out features on it. We do not do that. We are not one of those smart companies. Um, <laughs> so for us, it's the opposite, where uh, we we keep the same designer on. So you know, uh, I'm designing both games. I think that's important. I think if you change designers and then you expect the game to, um, the expansion to mesh, you, you may... They may not understand what's going on there, so the designer needs to be involved. Um, but for us, Legendary Heroes is a chance to listen to the things that our fans said about Fallen Enchantress, the things they liked, let's do more of that, the things that they don't like, let's make those things better, and then, uh, you know, in our own playing, here are some here are some things that we would like to do to really, you know, make it better in, in, in some of those areas. Now, I've, I've, I've played a little bit. It's in beta right now, and I've, I've spent some time with it. Uh, so I want to ask you about specific points, some of the specific things that are being added. But first, uh, I'm curious, can you, can you break down what were some of the things that people didn't like in Fallen Enchantress that have led to what you're doing in Legendary Heroes? Because I look at Legendary Heroes kind of as, oh, they're making this better, and they're making this better. And, like, all the bullet points seem to me like, oh, we're just going to make a cool improvement here. Uh, What's an example of something where you either maybe took something away or changed something based on negative feedback? Because I look at all of these as these kind of positive additions. Uh, Yeah. The big one that, that, big feedback that we got from, fans was they enjoyed the champion game. You go out, you recruit your champions, you get your little army, your adventuring party together, or your army if you have your training units in there and go around and kill monsters. And they enjoyed the empire game, uh, settling cities, building improvements in your cities, 
working on your economy, building an empire. But the, the comment we got back was, yeah, we, we enjoy both sides of this games, but they are disconnected from each other. Um, I can play the champion game and not worry too much about my empire, and I can ignore that side of the game, which is something that we never intended. These, these two pieces should be, should be linked to each other. Or they could play the Empire game and forget about the champion side. Um, so that was feedback we got. It wasn't a feedback in, in I hate this. It was feedback as, as in these two pieces, which are major aspects of the game, just aren't as linked together as, as they should be. So the change we made in Fallen Enchantress was to put fame in as a mechanic. So champions are no longer out there in the wild um, for you to come across and find and then recruit. I mean, that fixes a couple problems for us. One, uh, the champions you have access to are no longer based on map generation. It's no longer random. Mm -hmm. Uh, What? Go ahead, sorry. Instead, um, you have to make choices for your empire. You have to research technologies that are going to allow you to um, gain fame, um, finish quests, spend your time doing quests, which will gain you fame, or build improvements that are going to give you fame. And as your fame increases, champions will come to you. When you hit certain fame thresholds, two champions come, and you have to pick between the two. Um, So the nice thing about that is you're never put in a position where, well, I just don't have any champions around me, or I can't find any, so I guess I can't do champions in this game, because it's entirely dependent on, um, you know, what choices you made. If you, You will have access to champions if you choose to build that way, and if you don't, then you won't, and that's fine. But that's a choice the player has made now. So I'm playing, and I'm earning fame. I've decided, okay, I'm going to do stuff. I'm going to either build something or do a tech. I'm going to do stuff to get myself fame. And every now and then, I get this great choice between, you know, two people show up, and I pick, do I want this kind of hero, do I want that kind of hero? Uh, it's almost like choosing between the gods in Age of Mythology. You know, do I want to worship this minor god for these powers or that minor god for those powers? So what determines what two champions I am offered? Because you, another thing you've done is it looks like the champions are more, um, I don't want to say hard coded or scripted, but they're kind of they're kind of written. Like you have distinct personalities. I guess you did that before, but 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 now it seems like you're trying to put more character into these champions and define them more through their gameplay mechanics. Is that accurate? Yeah, since they they are presented to the pl- to the player and that one screen where I see those two guys standing there, I didn't want you, you'll notice that screen doesn't have all their stats on it. I didn't want a player looking at well, his spell resistance is a little higher, <laughs> and he has his initiative is a little higher. I wanted them to see big meaty things. Oh, that guy can cast fireball. He can cast f- all these fire spells. And this guy over here, he's a warrior. You know, I see his big flaming sword and and uh, you know he has these cool t- special attack abilities that nobody else has and, and we're actually still adding those uh, new special abilities in but, um, uh, but but we really wanted to make them very big iconic choices where we never wanted a player to be like well they both kind of look the same to a casual player but I guess it doesn't matter we wanted it to be very clear oh this guy is this kind of guy and, and this guy is, is a completely different archetype you know, Derek, normally I would be the first to complain about, you know, why can't I see the information to base my choice on? Why can't I see their hit points and their stats? But what time I've spent with Legendary Heroes, it never occurred to me once to complain about that because the, the choices were so distinct from each other. They, they were such broad, different choices that I didn't feel like I needed to look at, at the stats. Is that something that you jury-rigged the choices to present, like to always make them very different characters, or is that just how the characters are built? 
Uh, well, for one, all those characters are handmade, so it's, there's no randomization there. They are specifically made, and each one is looked at, and I go through each of those characters and say, okay, when a player is looking at this guy, what's he, what's he seeing? What's he thinking? Um, so that helps with a lot of it. And then we do have some code in the back end that helps make sure that you don't get two guys that are similar to each other. So no two fire mages we, will be popped up there. You know, we contrast them. Now, here's, a, here's a, another huge difference in the game. Uh, you know, I mentioned wanting all that information to be able to make choices. When I choose between the two heroes, they're pretty broad choices, so I can pretty clearly – I have a reasonable expectation that I, I have plenty of information about the choice I'm making. I'm not going to get tricked or anything. But then once I've got the hero and he starts leveling up um, – I now, it used to be, I think, that when you leveled up, you got to pick between some different traits. But now, there's an entire skill tree laid bare to me. I can completely see, as I'm leveling up my hero, oh, here's where I want him to be down the road, so I'm going to make these choices. It's much more like something like an action RPG, where you're building a character over time with a specific goal in mind. Uh, and that's very new, too, as well, right? Yeah, this is one of those areas where the players gave us lots of positive feedback. We enjoy leveling our champions. We enjoy picking skills. And in Fallen Enchantress, you have five random traits that you can pick one of, uh, and players enjoy doing that. But because it was random, um, it was a little hard to balance. The pacing of it was, was hard to control. In some cases, you could be playing a game and you could get you know, two really good traits right off the bat, uh, level two and three, and, and it could significantly alter the difficulty of that game. Um, where if we put them in the skill trees, uh, we have a little more control over pacing. We know you can't get the trait that gives you plus 50% spell damage until... Um, you know, you're at least seventh level because that's how, how, how many skill levels you have to go down. So we can control that a little bit more. And we found the players like it better. They like being able to look at, oh, this is what I'm going to plan out for this guy. And this, it helps the heroes feel more distinct if they have a plan for him. This is my defender. He protects everybody around him. Um, he can take just tons of damage and keep people away from my archers and mages. And this guy's my air mage. Uh, he makes everybody more mobile and he can teleport across the battlefield. And that's what my plans for him are. Um, you know, so players enjoy doing that part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also like being, uh, yeah, I, I like a lot, it does kind of remind me of like a tech tree where when you're researching tech, you know down the line what you're getting, what you're moving towards. It definitely makes the heroes feel more like a longer term, like a part of my longer term plan. Uh, I really like being able to see that. So uh, you also added, um, you, you, you choose a class. I seem to recall with the earlier champions when they hit, was it level 10, you could sort of choose a a distinct class for them, or a subclass, right? Level four, yes. They can pick level a fourth. Okay. Well, now it's much more immediate, right? Like, is it as soon as they hit a level, you pick a... Is it a class, or what are you calling that? Uh, it's a path, actually, is what, okay. what we call it. But it never says path anymore in there. It's just you when, you when you first time you level up, you have those five options ahead of you with a big bright, colorful screen where you can pick, you know, is this guy going to be a mage? Is he going to be a defender? Is he going to be an assassin? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you also, uh, one of the, n- the new changes that I've noticed uh, is the tactical maps seem to have a bit of new character. It used to be they were kind of wide open. There might be some obstacles in there. But playing now, I'm noticing a lot of the tactical maps have distinct shapes. They have choke points. They have big, fat obstacles in the middle. They seem kind of hand-built. They give me a sense of place or, lo- or location. Um, I'm presuming some folks complained about the, the maps felt empty or open, or they didn't seem to have that much impact on the tactical battle. That's something you guys wanted to change. We had a couple issues with tactical battle. So 
the difficulty of combining a civilization-style turn-based strategy game, an empire builder, with a tactical battle game is we, we kind of get we have expectations on both sides where where in Heroes of Might and Magic or any game that's, that is a tactical game, I love Disgaea, for example. Disgaea, it's all about the choices you made in com- in combat. So I can go in there, and if I can figure out the puzzle, if, I, if I'm smart enough and clever enough in the, what, I cho- what I choose, I can win that battle. But the problem with an empire builder is an empire builder, the key decisions the player is making is all about you know, my production, my economy, my empire. Those are the decisions that should decide if I win this game or not, not the specific decisions that I'm making um, in, a, in combat. It doesn't mean much if I spend all my time building an empire and then I go and I lose because I'm making bad decisions in battle. Or conversely, it doesn't make much much of a point if if I can ignore the empire side and if I just have figured out the puzzles of the tactical side, then my empire game doesn't matter anymore. So we had to decide which one is going to be key to our game, and the decision is we are first and foremost an empire game. So it is about your economy. It is about your country. Um, so that economy is key. So it's more about what you bring into the battle than your decisions you make in the battle. And the problem with that decision is it made the battles more predictive. Um, so if I didn't bring enough in there, I'm losing that battle. It doesn't matter what I do. I don't have many choices to affect that. Or conversely, if I bring in t- enough, then I'm going to win. And it doesn't matter what I do, which makes the battles not that exciting. Mm-hmm. So we made changes for that for Legendary Heroes. Um, the one thing is we made those decisions matter more, so we introduced a couple new things. Um, one is the swarm mechanic. So anytime you're attacking an enemy, if you have allies that are around that, that enemy, they give you bonuses to accuracy and your attack rating. So if there's lots of little creatures that are swarming your guys, um, even though one-on-one they may be those mites might not do much damage, you get four or five of them around you, they start to hit for big numbers. And I just want to say, by the way, real quick, Derek, that, that is so immediately apparent when you start playing as well, because when you, when you fight, the people around you are the people around the person who's attacking you, their little animation triggers as well. There's this very immediate visual indicator that, holy cats, I'm standing next to a bunch of dudes, they're all attacking me each time any one of them attacks me. Uh, it, it definitely shows. Like, it definitely feels like something is very different here. Don't stand here because then they can all attack me. Stand over here where there's a flanking kind of situation. Uh, I, I really like what that does to the shape of tactical combat. Yeah, and along with that, we put in all of the ranged attacks, all of the new ranged attack uh, possibilities. So if you have an axe, and anybody with an axe can do this, they get the cleave ability, which hits three units that are adjacent to you in a, in a row. So even though we have the swarm mechanic, which kind of rewards you for staying back and away from enemies and not get surrounded by them, we have plenty of new abilities that let you take advantage of that, too. So plenty of reasons to put yourself in danger. Spears have, anybody with a spear has an impale ability, so they hit an enemy and whoever is behind them. Um, all of the weapons have combat abilities now. Each of the factions has a combat ability uh, that they can trigger in combat. So... When any unit that you have, be it a simple you know, militia from the early game to a spearman to some of the more advanced units that you get later on, they have at least two combat abil- two special abilities that they can use in combat outside of their normal move and attack stuff. So, so players have a chance to really think about, I'm going to use that crushing blow this turn. I won't be able to use it for five more, but I, right. I really need to make sure that guy you know, gets knocked out now. Or anybody with a shield can do a shield bash and knock a, do normal damage and also knock that unit back a square, which helps break up those swarms. So my guy's getting swarmed. Somebody with a shield can step in there and start bumping 
open enemies back, and, and those kind of things start to play together. I noticed I was definitely getting a lot more use out of that little hot bar along the bottom. You guys have that great little interface thing that if you're just using spells, you might never notice, where you can assign new number keys, to the just like in, a, in an MMO, to little different slots for skills. I sort of feel like there's a lot more stuff for me to put in there now, even for units that used to just move and attack. Now they've got all these cool little additional tactical options. Um, yeah. And the monsters uh, have them too, so you have to be careful about, careful about that. Wolves have pack tactics, which doubles their swarm bonus. There's a new monster, uh, the, the uh, Haragon, that we put in that has that big bony ridge in the front of his face that just charges and slams into people and also knocks them around the battlefield and makes it hard to flank and get your units in the order that you would like them in. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you did take out damage types, which used to be a prominent part of... If I recall, it was interacting damage types with armor types. Was that how it used to work? Yeah. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up. So, yes, and I am a Excel guy, so I have these big uh, models of all the attack damage and, and armor values, and I don't need to play through the game to see. Well, if I, if I make that weapon have two more attack, let's play a couple games and see how that feels. Uh, it's all modeled out for me. Um, the problem with that is it makes me... So I spend a lot of time thinking about the statistical differences in the games and not as much time around the the actual visual playing difference of them. Mm-hmm. So I, I had this idea for cutting uh, blunt and pierce damage. So if you had chainmail on, um, chainmail helped you against cutting damage, but not against blunt weapons. Mm-hmm. So that would give players a reason to be like, oh, well, that guy's wearing chainmail. I'm going to use my guys with, with maces, and I'm going to attack him because they will do more damage against him and provide a little bit of that tactical, you know, I'm trying to work this out and think through these problems. And, okay, I feel clever. You know, hey, this is a good decision. I would be much better to attack the chainmail guy with my maces and use my axes guy on somebody else. Um, but the problem with that was players... Even though there was a statistical difference there, they largely ignored that mechanic, what those differences were. And because of that, they just felt like, oh, I just, I did, I seemed to do a lot of damage there, or I didn't do much damage there. And they weren't really making those decisions based on those statistical differences. It was so much better to take away that layer, take away that minutia, those extra stats and numbers and calculation, and just have the weapons do different things. My spears, like I mentioned, can impale through one guy and hit the guy behind him. Now the players really think about, okay, well, I want to have some spearmen because I like this thing that they can do, and if I get them in, in the right, you know, stand in the right place, I can hit multiple guys. Because the end goal of, of both of those systems is when the players are designing their units, I want them thinking about, do I want to give this guy an axe? Do I want to give him a spear? Do I want to give him a hammer? And it was so much better for us to have those weapons do different things in battle than to just be statistically different. There's, I'm sure there's a, a fancy game designer way to put this, Derek, so uh, I'm probably not going to hit the actual wording correctly, but it, it strikes me as um, the difference between using a negative modifier for an inventory choice or only using a positive modifier. For instance, if you have those damage types, and I at first was like, no, don't take away damage types. That, that was a cool bit of personality. But if I have those damage types, my choices can punish me. I can make the wrong choice. I can sit there and use my axe against a guy with chain mail, and then I'm having a negative modifier sort of applied to my experience. I'm being punished for playing quote-unquote wrong. However, if you take that out, but you make instead the axe just do a cool ability, 
that I don't get if I'm not using the axe. Like, I, I can't use an axe wrong. I can only fail to use its little bonus power. There's no punitive uh, effect from how I set up my characters. Uh, it's all gravy. Like, it's all positive stuff I can do. Uh, so I feel like taking the damage types out, even though at first I resisted that, now I kind of appreciate it as, hey, there's there's no... You're never going to punish me with a negative two to damage, for instance, based on not setting up my inventory correctly. Uh, I'm sure there's a more elegant way to say that, but the bottom line is I, I, I at first resisted the loss of damage types. Now I appreciate what it does instead. So. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it leads the player into a lot of situations where he's thinking, oh, I wish this guy would have had, had an axe here because then I could do this, or I wish I had a spear here. In this situation, a spear would be a better, or in this situation, a crossbow would be better. And so they're always thinking about things they would love to do instead of being on the opposite side of it, just like you said, where it's, oh, well, this isn't going to work well here. So I'm getting punished, yeah. yeah. Uh, and by the way, I, I do want to, uh, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but I, I really like how much personality you guys put in something that's normally reserved for, like, a magic weapon. Like, the fact that, that axes and spears and swords, that, that mundane things have really cool effects and give me unique abilities, uh, that, that's, that's kind of heresy in, in a fantasy game. You know, a sword should just not do anything special. It should just do one to six points of damage. Uh, one of the things you guys did early on with Fallen Enchantress was you gave mundane inventory items a lot of personality as much personality as a magical spell uh so i'm really enjoying seeing you guys push that even further with legendary heroes um you you mentioned that kind of rhinoceros thing uh what are some of the other new creatures that we're seeing in legendary heroes new monsters uh, the big change is um, there's undead in uh, legendary heroes so uh, the scenario for fallen enchantress uh not to be too spoilerific on it, um, but uh, Relius attempts to resurrect someone, and it goes horribly wrong. Um, and the, the process of, of doing that uh, rose the dead uh, across the continent. So now there are skeletons, there are uh, there's a banshee, there's liches, there's necromancy is is possible now that that wasn't possible before. Um, the banshee is one of my favorites. It's this ghost woman who um, whose scream damages everybody in the battlefield, and she's completely immune to physical weapons. So, uh, going into battle with her, uh, if you're not ready for it, can you know? There's always we, we've been doing play tests with with uh, players who jump into that battle real quick and go up and realize, oh, <laughs> none of this stuff is going to work. I got to scramble to to come up with something. Uh, I will say just real quick, uh, one of the things I've always admired that you do, and you did this as, as far ago as the Fall from Heaven mod you did for, for Civ 4, is you do put these kind of, um, I don't want to say traps because it's clear that there's something dangerous or different, but you'll put in monsters that kind of subvert the normal power structure that you're playing. Like I'll always remember in Fall from Heaven what an ordeal it was to go up against a dragon. You know, I could have a million points of strength or whatever, like I could pretty much handily beat anything on the map, but that dragon, you would always break the rules somehow. Uh, and it sounds like you're kind of breaking the rules with a banshee as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and giant spiders in Fall from Heaven were always the, you know, they're invisible to most units, so they would just jump out and, and kill where, where they wanted to until you could get a ranger together and go over there and hunt it down and finally get it out. But it'll just sit there and pick on you until you do that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I've always had kind of fun with that. It's very unfair, Derek. That's very unfair. It's, it's like cheating. <laughs> Yes. Uh, uh, all right. So uh, the, I, I do have a bone to pick with you, Derek. Okay. I loved you guys' mechanic for city growth. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I did a, I do these little year-end awards where I pick my, some of my favorite things from the year. And I think my choice for uh, – I forget how I phrased it. I should have looked this up before I mentioned it. But my pick for best new gameplay mechanic of 2012 was the cool stuff you did with city growth in Fallen Enchantress, where it felt like the, you had to make tough choices about how to grow your cities. Your cities felt like characters in a party-based RPG uh, I really liked how much personality they had, how many mutually exclusive choices I had to make. And one of the things I really liked about the city growth model in Fallen Enchantress was how food set the capacity for your city, the maximum size. You know, right. if I built a lot of farms and I built a bakery in my, my capital that affected all my cities, I, uh, you know, I could increase the capacity for my cities by building all that food infrastructure. However, the growth, which was, uh, uh, you know, how quickly my cities would grow, how quickly they would fill into that capacity, was based on a completely different stat. Uh, it, was it called influence? Yeah, I think it was called influence. No, it's... In- uh, growth was the, was the stat at the city level. Faction prestige uh, played into prestige. that. Prestige. Well, to modify that, yeah, prestige. Right, right, so prestige, right. So prestige was something my faction would have. Yes. But prestige was divided evenly amongst the number of cities that I had. So I could either make the choice to grow one city really quickly or to have multiple cities, and this was kind of a... Uh, a size-limiting factor on your empire, because if I had multiple cities, that prestige had to be shared amongst them. So uh, that was kind of a cool model. I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed how it forced me to make tough choices as I expanded. That is gone now, and now everything is determined by food. Food determines both my growth rate and the capacity for my city. So I'm worried, and I can't say for sure, but I'm worried that in playing Legendary Heroes, I am going to miss that cool prestige mechanic. What do you have to say to me to reassure me? Uh, the, the faction prestige came from an earlier build of Fallen Enchantress before release where population, individual population of your city meant everything. So you got production based on citizens in that city. You got gold based on citizens of that city. So that, that individual, there is 30 guys here or there are 35 guys here, really mattered. Um, so... In, in that system where each of those guys matters, faction prestige was a big deal. You know, how am I going to, where are these guys going for? We had to change that system because of uh, design issues. Um, mm-hmm. It was almost impossible to balance when you're talking about each one of those guys does something and you could have a scale of 10 guys in a city or 100 guys in a city trying to handle that, that balance that. Um, but the faction prestige mechanic stepped around, uh, stayed around. The problem with faction prestige in Fallen Enchantress is it's a great idea on paper, uh, and I like it on paper, but it didn't matter that much at the end of the day. It wasn't a big enough deal to influence your city plans. Players built lots of cities until the point where their faction prestige was almost nil per city. And then they built improvements and cast Sovereign's Call and, and used other methods to get their growth going in each of their individual cities, and they ignored faction prestige. So it wasn't, it wasn't a big enough mechanic. So instead of, of using faction prestige as that, now we have a modifier for unrest in each of your cities based on the amount of cities in your empire. So if you have Six cities, you have a negative modif- an, an unrest modifier in all your cities ah. because you have six cities. And the nice thing about that is it actually accomplishes what we were trying to do in the first place, which is the more cities you have, the lower the 
production and research each individual city right. is giving right. should be. Um, which, when it, when it came directly from population, that's the way it works. But in Fallen Enchantress, it doesn't do that because those cities are just all giving their normal amount of production and research. Um, but now that it's been switched over and we get a negative modifier from the amount, how big your empire is, now you can have six cities, but they're all going to produce less production and research than if you had a single city there. And thematically, it kind of makes sense to address the problems of a larger empire through the unrest mechanic, I guess. I, I, I like that, because it, it, it makes you want to build things like the bell towers and whatnot that control unrest, and that seems thematically like the kind of thing you would do to manage a larger empire. Very nice. Yep. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. It makes the unrest mechanic a lot more important in players, a little more valuable to deal with it, as well as having a couple wonders which completely negate the uh, unrest penalty from multiple cities. So if you put the Tower of Dominion down, that city will never be affected by that no matter how long your empire grows or how big your empire grows. So it gave us some fun things to play with. Um, the food increasing or decreasing your growth was another big change that you mentioned, um, and that was important because players just didn't uh, weren't prioritizing uh, grain very much. They liked the materials that they saw in those tile yields because that meant that city produced more, and they loved essence because uh, being able oh, yeah. to put jamas on your cities is always is always good. But grain was one, the amount of grain that was in that tile was well that city will eventually can it grow to 100 population or 200 population, but it's certainly not going to affect me for the first. You know, for the next hundred turns, so I don't really care. Um, but with it tied to growth, it definitely matters. Now I see a five grain tile sitting there, and I drop my city on it. It's going to start growing um, uh, gangbusters compared to anything else around it. So it prioritizes those a little differently. Excellent point, Derek, because that was, I looked at grain and iron as iron being how immediately useful is this space, grain being how useful is it in the longer term. Uh, and I couldn't care less about grain as far as like the, the short term payoff. Uh, so I like that. It seems now they're, they're kind of equally co-important. So, uh, yeah, okay, fair enough. I think you've, you've probably won me over. Uh, now what, did, what was I thinking of influence? Is influence the diplomatic? Uh, yes. Resource. Okay. That's not. Yes. That, what did you do with that? We got it entirely. Uh, so the, the, another resource in the game uh, called influence, and it was just something you could trade when you're talking to other AI players. If you had stored up some influence by uh, having certain wonders or resources, then you could give them some res, uh, some influence, trade them some influence, and trade for you know them giving you gold or declaring war on somebody or whatever you had. Right. And at the end of the day, gold is just a better way to do that. That's that's the, kind of the whole point of gold is my, you know, let's just bribe them directly. We don't need another resource in this game. Um, that one I don't like. Yeah, okay, go ahead, Derek. Convince me. Because this, I don't think you're going to convince me on that. Because it, it's something that I actually see as, uh, I guess, I don't know about a holdover, but I know that uh, Stardock used this concept in the Galactic Civilization games as a way to let you jigger diplomacy with a unique resource um, that you could only do in a single-player game. You know, if you give another player this resource, he's probably not going to matter. But it was, a, it was a cool way to say, hey, I'm so sexy and charismatic to the other empires that I've got this special resource that's going to make them do things they wouldn't normally do. Uh, and that's how Galactic Civilization worked. That's what you guys did, guys did with Influence and Fallen Enchantress. Um, but now you're wanting to remove that extra resource and just make gold more important? Is that correct? 
Yeah, yeah. If it's removed, I mean, there's there's other things you can trade. You can trade knowledge. You can trade resources. You can trade gold. All the things you've always been able to do for these other players, and putting another thing in there whose whose sole use in the world. So I have this influence resource. What's it for? Oh, I can trade it for things. Um, I can trade other things for things too. It wasn't unique, um, and it was another mechanic for players to learn. And and I I tend to, if if it doesn't feel big enough. Then it needs to get out of the get out of the design and get out of the game, so we can players can focus on uh, the pieces that are left. Okay. Well, you, you've won me over on the new food model and uh, losing prestige, but I'm still going to sit here with my arms crossed and go harumph at the loss <laughs> of uh, influence for the time being. Maybe once I've played some more, uh, you'll you'll win me over. Fair uh, enough. All right. So let's see. Uh, larger maps, I think, is another bullet point. I personally never felt the need for them, but that was something that you, you felt you wanted to give players is larger maps? Yeah, I, I, I'm like you, Tom. I, um, I tend to not play those massive, massive games, but then again, I'm playing a bill that tends to change every day, so I'm always like, I don't want to play yet, I don't want to play today, so I start over a new game. Um, but there are players out there. I, I'm, I'm kind of amazed by the players that love to play on epic speed in our games. That, you know, same thing in the Civilization series. They love to play those epic speed games, which are going to be, you know, they're going to take three weeks, four weeks, and, and we'll have, that's the kind of game they want. Then uh, we want to give them the tools so they go do that. So, and big, big maps. We put out a map pack for Fallen Enchantress. A couple months ago, and one of the maps on there was this uh, map of the entire world, and it was just huge, just massively huge, and it was uh, the one our players just constantly gave us the positive feedback on. They love playing that map. They love playing that map. So we went ahead and just increased the the size of, of maps you can play on for Legend of Heroes. Now, uh, a big question, and, and uh, I probably should have mentioned this up front: uh, When can we play Legendary Heroes, and how much does it cost? Legendary Heroes, if you, uh, it's not out yet. It's beta is not out yet, actually, either. You had mentioned that earlier. It's not. You, you have a, a early copy. Um, the, uh, it will be coming out in April. The, um, uh, public beta will start next month. People that pre-order will, will get access to it at that point, be able to give us feedback for it. It will cost $40 if you're buying it new. If you don't have Fallen Enchantress, you're just starting with the series. But if you already have Fallen Enchantress, then it's $20. Okay, uh, good. Uh, and uh, I do have a question. For, oh, and have we have I missed any major bullet points before I ask you about something? My own sort of pet request. Uh, um, we have monsters that you can recruit as champions now. That's something that Fallen Enchantress never did. Um, so uh, if you get some of these monster characters, there's an undead character that you can recruit as a champion. He has uh, lots of new and unusual abilities. Uh, there's more. Um, quests and items and spells and such. Some of those quests have new monstrous champions that if, uh, uh, if you help them out or, or, or do what, what the quest requires, then you can get them to join your armies, which is neat to see. Um, I wish I had my, my bullet. I don't have my bullet point list, but uh, that's all I can think of right now. Uh, and and uh, you guys have always been very open about like writing developer diaries, and uh, I presume we'll be reading more from you guys about Legendary Heroes in the coming months as well, right? Yes. Good, good. Uh, now, Derek, here's my uh, my pet request for Fallen Enchantress. Um, I don't know if you guys get this request a lot. I'm just curious if I, if I throw it out to you. So I play a game of Fallen Enchantress. Uh, I either do well or I do poorly. Maybe I win, maybe I lose. The game ends and I'm back at the main the main score the main screen to, to start a new game. Uh, 
I want a high score list. Like I want some recognition of how well I did or didn't do that persists between games. What are the chances that I will ever get that in Fallen Enchantress? Uh, you do have you are ranked at the end of your game, and it shows you what your rank is as com- in, as compared to um, several notorious figures in the uh, the world of Elemental. Um, I don't know if it it's gone. Uh, yeah, it, and then it's gone, so you don't ever right. get to see it again. I that's I don't think that's going to happen for Legendary Heroes, um, <laughs> but. Uh, and I, 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 but you're not the only person that's asked for it. I will say okay. I have heard the request before, so you're definitely not crazy. All right. So if you're listening and you agree with me, bug the folks at Stardock. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such a, it's such a, a minor thing, but I just, I, I, I crave some sort of persistence uh, between games when I play. And and part of it too, Derek, is if it's not there, I can sort of accept it. But when I play competing games that do it. I, I really am like, oh, I want that in another game. And I've been playing a game called Eador Genesis, which is another turn-based fantasy game. And they have a really complex scoring mechanic that even does things like penalizes you if you reload a turn. Oh. Uh, and I, which I really like that concept because, you know, oh, my hero died. Do I go back a turn and hurt my score? Or do I just suck it up and deal with it? And it's saved. Like they save a high score list that, uh, and just things like Game Center on my iPhone and Xbox Live. I mean, just that kind of persistence and getting something that lasts between games. Uh, I've just really come to crave that. Uh, so anyway, just something to put, a bug to put in your ear, Derek. Uh, okay, one thing that we've added for Legendary Heroes um, is uh, Legendary Heroes is all is Steam integrated. Uh, Fun Enchantress was not. So one uh-huh. of the things that we have with it is uh, there's 30 some uh, Steam achievements um, that we've added to the game. So winning with various sections will earn you an achievement. Um, killing a dragon will earn you an achievement. Oh. Uh, and with um, a city to city level five will achievement. From that level, we do have lots of unlocks and things. So you can say, okay, well, I've accomplished these goals, and you can look at the achievements you don't have yet. And if you do want to play and try to get those things, then then oh. that is out there and available for you now. Well, you've you've totally mollified me. <laughs> Fine, okay, I'm I'm good then. I'm I'm good. <laughs> uh, all right, so Derek, thank you uh, for telling us about that. We look forward to hearing more about it in the near future. And I'm sorry, when did you say the beta is available for people who uh, the the, folk, the open beta for folks to play? Next month, so uh, March, and then April for release. Good deal. Awesome. Uh, all right, well, let's now transition into some games of the week and news of the week. Derek, you are going to stick around with us for this. You have picked something for news of the week and a game of the week, correct? Yes. All right. Let's, though, start with McMaster. McMaster, why don't you give us your choice for news of the week on this uh, late date in February? What do you have for us? Uh, I don't know. Do I do it? <clears throat> because it was what I was going to do as my news anyway, but... uh all right, PlayStation 4 was announced today. What? No way! <laughs> <laughs> I was going to do it anyway. I didn't know you were going to go and watch this freaking press conference. And Oh, no, no, I was kidding about, about you doing it. No, I'm glad you brought it up. I was, I was going to faint, McMaster. I was going to play the role of a guy who doesn't know anything about the PS4, and you were going to tell me about it. Well, yeah, it, which is funny because I don't know as much about the PS4 as you do. Because you actually watched the press conference. <laughs> I did not. Yeah, so Sony did this interminable two-hour presentation. You, you know, it's like E3 getting earlier every year. It's like Christmas. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Sony basically did their uh, E3 presentation, uh, which had some technical specs that I guess were sexy if you care about that sort of thing. And they announced some titles, and then it ended with, with a conspicuous omission of any reference to price. So, 
you're probably going to be getting a $600 new console. Uh, I guess is the conventional wisdom that it's coming out this holiday. It must be, right? Uh, yeah, yeah I, I think. I mean, that the the leak stuff was said in November. You know, whether or not that happens, you know. Now, now, Derek, you're a, a sort of an old school nerdy man PC gamer like me and McMaster. Uh, do you care at all about a PS4? Did you pay any attention to any of this announcement? I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I actually don't own an, an Xbox. Um, my boys had one, uh, and uh, they're 23 and 26 now, so when they moved out, they took the Xbox with them, and I haven't picked it up. But I, I've always had my PS2, PS3, PS4, so it's the it's my console of preference anyway, so I, I, yeah, I was interested in it. I, missed, I saw a Blizzard logo. Somebody had come into my <laughs> office, so I had it paused, and I looked back, I saw a Blizzard logo there. What, what yeah. was that about? That yeah. was a port of Diablo 3. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the the beauty of Diablo 3, I always felt that Diablo 3 was streamlined enough where it was finally a Diablo that might work on a console system. Uh, and so, you know, sure enough, they've they've thought of that, and there will be a Diablo 3 for your, uh, your PS4. Yeah. yeah, I was kind of interested as a PC game developer. The specs were very PC to me. It's definitely a much different uh, box than the PS3 was. And what that means from my perspective as well, this is a 64-bit system that is uh, uh, under the covers very PC-ish, which means mm-hmm. it's going to be easier to port games from right. that are developed for PS4 uh, onto PC they will probably be 64-bit only games, so that will help you know move us into the era of 64-bit gaming, which I'm I'm all for. And uh, sharing games back and forth between uh, you know two of my favorite platforms is always good. Derek, how do you feel about uh, Sony's new drive to encourage uh, social interaction, to to encourage <laughs> using your real name? Uh, they said, quote that uh, real names will, quote, most likely be seeded from existing social networks, which to me is shorthand for uh, Facebook integration. Uh, h- yeah. How do you feel about all this kind of stuff, Derek? And McMaster, McMaster, either of you, how do you feel about this? I'm, I'm 40, so I could honestly, I don't really need my console. I, all the focus on social and presentation, it's going to get to learn who you are. Um, I, I hate to say anything that's unkind because I am excited about the PS4, but I, I really don't care at all about that. I have a question. Uh, did they mention um, anything about their network stuff, like this PlayStation Network? Uh, well, they, they showed off some of their new interface, which looks very Xbox Live-y. It looks like kind of abandoned that, that crossbar style. Um, and, yeah, they, they, they have the share button that you can press and upload a video of your gameplay. You can even have people play your games for you. So, McMaster, when I get to, I'm going to need you to work on my uh, trophies for a while. I'm just going to turn yeah. over remote control to you. You're going to play some of the real crappy games that I've got, and I just need you to do some trophy work for me. Okay, um, sure. That sounds great. Yeah. So they mentioned that, but do you, do you mean something different, McMaster? About no. Uh, one of the rumors is that they're going to charge. Oh, right, that, no, yeah, I think that went hand-in-hand with not mentioning anything about price. Uh, yeah, I figured that was it, yeah. See, that's uh, that's going to be the whole burn on everybody that was <laughs> that was talking smack about the Xbox Live. Like, will Sony now uh, charge a monthly fee for PlayStation networking or whatever? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they will. 
Or not, maybe not monthly, but uh, a subscription at least. Here's what I'd like to see. Sony announces that they're going to charge a monthly fee or subscription, and Microsoft announces they're dropping theirs for the three. <laughs> that I would like to see. Yes. That would be like that, uh, what's that, uh, uh, that, that story about the guy who cuts, the wife cuts his hair to get her hair to get a watch fob for, actually it's nothing, gift of the Magi. It's nothing like that. Forget that I even brought it up. Let's move on. What do you guys think about the social aspects? What do you guys? Oh, I couldn't care less. I mean, I yeah. have long I I registered for Facebook way back when. I haven't touched it in over a year. Um, I like the I, I like the sort of the limited interactivity of stuff like Xbox Live and Gamer Score points, but I have no desire to tie it into a larger framework of my actual real life. You know, me being tagged in photos or sharing pictures with my sister in in Tennessee. You know, all that stuff. I don't need that on my gaming platform, and I have no desire to participate in it. Um, but you know, I'm like you. You know, I'm I'm your age, Derek. Uh, maybe the young kids, the young whippersnappers these days. That's what they're into. McMaster, you're young. Does that appeal to you? You can now uh, tweet from your PS4, McMaster. How do you feel about that? You know, I'm not that much younger. Master, you're you're a kid. Everybody knows that. Oh, you know what? You did just have a birthday, by the way. Happy happy thirty uh, first birthday. Thirty uh, first, yeah. I wish, but no, uh, yeah, I appreciate the the sentiment. No, I I really don't care about the whole uh, thing. You know, I, it doesn't make any difference to me whether or not I can Facebook on it or not. I just want it to play freaking games, and that's really all I want my Xbox to do. Yeah. So if anybody's listening, uh, make it play games. I don't care if I can watch television on it or whatever. Well, on that note, McMaster, one thing that was exciting about the presentation, uh, I had assumed that Sony was just burying the Vita. And, McMaster, you and I are very happy with our Vitas. Uh, yes. I think it, it was a big, unexpected surprise for the both of us last year. Oh, yeah. We got one because they were cheap at Black Friday, and lo and behold, we were just tickled pink with with how they turned out, with some of the games on them. And Sony just seems like they couldn't care less about supporting it, uh, so the Vita looked like a dead end. Uh, I, I was very pleased with how they stressed during this presentation that they want the Vita to be a built-in part of the PS4 ecosystem. Uh, and I hate that, that phrasing, but it, it makes sense. Uh, and they really want to support either remote play or cross-play with the PS4 and the Vita, meaning if you're playing a game on the PS4 and you have to turn off the TV because your girlfriend wants to watch Grey's Anatomy or whatever, you can pick up your the game you were playing and continue it on your Vita. Now, naturally, all games can't do that, but it does seem to be something that Sony really wants to push. So I was very encouraged in this presentation to see that they haven't given up completely on the Vita. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's great news. Um, that's probably the best thing all night. Yeah. Uh, and let's see, as far as games, because I'm like you, McMaster, I just I just sort of, I'm, I'm a software guy. I don't really care about the, the hardware, the social right. networking stuff. Uh, there's a new Kill Zone, which looked pretty Kill Zone-y. Uh, there you have it. Yeah, the folks that did the MotorStorm games are doing something called Drive Club, which looked very... Forza E, whatever. Uh, Sucker Punch's new Infamous was announced. It's called uh, Second Son. Oh, that's cool. Uh, the Media Molecules guys who do the Little Big Planet things uh, showed off some crazy 3D sculpture game that uses the Move controller, which I didn't understand what the deal was there. But you know, Media Molecules—they tend to be pretty clever, crafty folks. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, 
There was, of course, an Ubisoft demo for Watch Dogs, which, you know, big open world game, and then the Diablo 3 announcement. So, there you go. And I imagine we'll be hearing more at E3. Uh, PAX East, they, I forget, someone mentioned, oh yeah, yeah, so Blizzard said they'll be showing more specifics about Diablo 3 at PAX East. Um, oh, uh, they're leaving, uh, they're leaving their little hole? Uh, yeah, it looks like they're, yeah, they're traveling cross country from Irvine <laughs> to, uh, to actually oh. announce stuff at PAX East, yeah. Yeah, what kills me is like, uh, they went to Gen Con one year I was there and I was like, are you serious? Like, you don't go to E3, but you go to Gen Con? Uh, I mean, cause like, hey, I like Gen Con, but, uh, it's no E3. Well, Diablo, like the wind, goes where they will. What do you uh, think right. about um, no backwards compatibility? Oh, yeah, that's I hate well, that. Well, you know what? Yeah, normally that would drive me bonkers. It does drive me bonkers. But I have been without a PS3 for a while. It died. I was sent a replacement one that was pre-dead. Uh, so my PS3 library, I've basically been cut off from it for a while. So I'm at the point where I'm willing to accept a lack of backwards compatibility. But that that is a that's it's kind of a, a kick in the gut, isn't it, Derek? Well, I understand their hardware architecture has changed completely, so it would be, you know, they'd literally have to put a PS3 in the box in order to make it happen, um, which would, you know, drive the price up even further, I'm sure. Um, so I understand it, but it does, it does kill me a little bit, because I, yeah. my, my game of the week is a PS3 game this week, and I'm having, I'm still having fun with my PS3, so. Well, you're not going to be able to play it on your PS4, so you better finish it before the holiday season, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so let's get to some other news of the week. That was the big deal. We'll be uh, hearing more about that at, uh, in the coming months. Uh, but what do you have for for news of the week, Derek? Because uh, this is this is some happy news. Uh, yes, um, uh, uh, Gas Powered Games was purchased by Wargamer.net. Um, was interesting news certainly that came up here in the past week or so. So uh, Wargamer.net. That sounds like a message board for war games, right? <laughs> Isn't that the worst name? Yeah, yeah, I I haven't played. Have you guys played World of Tanks? I have not. We have had uh, very brief. Okay, uh, we we've had some uh, folks on the forum who did uh, a, a game diary for us. I've just been pitched an article for it on the forum. Uh, it, it's it's an interesting f- take on free to play for an MMO, isn't it? Yeah, apparently they're doing. Gamebusters with it, and now they picked up uh, Gas Powered Games for for some amount. So uh, apparently, it's been a huge success for them. I'm, I'm, I want to sit down sometime in the next couple of days and play it a little bit and and uh, uh, see what it, see what all the fuss is about. Um, but I'm glad that Chris Taylor ended up somewhere. I know that his Kickstarter wasn't going real well, and uh, he has, of course, given a, a lot of games. He's created a lot of games that I love. So um, I'm glad to see him still making great games. Yeah, that that whole episode with launching the Kickstarter for Wild Man and how it, it eventually e- evolved into a, a, the future of gas-powered games, that, that was heartbreaking to watch. It was just absolutely wrenching, and I'm so glad it, it came to a happy conclusion because I anything that keeps gas-powered games working and making stuff, I, I think, is, is, a, is a, a good conclusion. So, yeah, even if it's some crazy Belarusian company uh, buying them, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yep. All right, so good news there. Uh, here's some news that is neither good nor bad. It is what it is. Uh, uh, Bungie was, uh, as we all know, way back when, acquired by Microsoft, and then they broke free from Microsoft. They signed an exclusive agreement with Activision, like a 10-year agreement, I think, and they have just announced what their first game with Activision is going to be. It is called Destiny. 
<laughs> yeah, they showed something about this that at the Sony conference, didn't they? I just got like an email like a few minutes ago saying something about the PS4 or Destiny coming to the PS4 or something. Destiny is a multi-platform game. Bungie did their term of service with an exclusive commitment to a platform. I think they want no more part of that. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a PC release as well. Does either of you guys know if Destiny is on the PC? I don't. Uh, okay. Not now. I hope it is. Uh, well, it's at least on the PS4 and whatever uh, next generation console Microsoft will be doing. Uh, it looks a lot like, from the footage, uh, Halo. Um, but the difference is it seems like they're going for this MMO first-person shooter approach, which, whatever. Uh, I, I could... Leave it or take it or leave it. We'll, we'll hear more information about it. Right now, basically, what we know is here's how it looks. It's multi-platform. It's an MMO, and it's set on I think it's Earth. I don't know if it's a planet, but anyway, the point is this mysterious giant moon shows up and hovers like you know a hundred feet off the ground, and for whatever reason, a bunch of people build a city underneath it, which doesn't seem like a very safe place to build a city, but whatever, uh, and that's the setup. So there you go. Um, so, yeah, Bungie's Destiny. How do, how do you guys feel about that name? What do you think of naming a video game Destiny? I, I think if you're going to pick a stripper's name to name your game after, it's a pretty good one. <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot more sense than, like, yeah, chartreuse. Uh, or, or Boom Boom. Yeah, exactly. Very good. <laughs> boom Boom would be a shockingly good name for a game. Okay, I'm kind of liking that now. Yeah, I don't know. I would, I would play Boom Boom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, so there you go. Uh, let's get on to some games of the week, because I can't wait to hear uh, Derek talk about uh, New Cooney Nooney. Oh, Isn't Lord. that your pick for game? Or no, no, I got the name wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, it's uh, Nuki Puni Dooney, right? Is that <laughs> no. He did that no? to me too, Derek. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm close, right? Let me try again. Uh, Nino Nuki. <laughs> it's Nino Cooney. Yeah, that's what I just said. Right. So uh, this, this is your pick for game of the week. McMaster has played it. Uh, so... Uh, this is why other countries hate us, Tom, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, have, they, they did make a point to give it an American name. Like, it's like Secret of the White Witch or something, right? Uh, well, something to do with the White Witch, like Wrath of the White Witch. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, all right, so tell us, why is this your game of the week? Uh, Derek Paxton, strategy game developer, playing a crazy JRPG. What's going on here? Uh, I like a lot of games. I'm a huge Studio Ghibli fan, and the game is just gorgeous. There's no getting around the fact that it's it's a beautiful game to see and enjoy. Um, the uh, I, I've always had a soft spot for JRPGs too. So running around a big and exploring a big world and leveling up and trying to find this monster for to finish this quest and going off and trying to find all the eggs to take to the old grandmotherly woman or or what have you is uh, always something that I I like. If, or day of, of work, not that my work is very hard since I have meetings about dragons and spells, but you know, just to relax and, and kind of run around that world, and it's, it's just gorgeous. It's, it's beautiful to play in. That's like a really big thing to me uh, as well in uh, Nino Kuni is that like uh, it's it's almost rarer to have like a large overworld map nowadays, uh, kind of like a, a Dragon Quest or old Final Fantasy style. But it's uh, it's really cool. I love the overworld map in that game. 
Yeah, and the, the environments are so well done. You see, when you're going through different areas, the the golden um, forests, you know, that look very autumny, and, and out into the deserts with the, the and there's lots of little touches in there. When you get high enough level, the monsters start to they try to run away from you. They don't want to fight you yeah. anymore. So you feel like when I'm I've come back to an area that I'm, uh, you know, I used to try to barely survive to get through and now when i come back in there the monsters are scattering left and right to, to get away from me it just definitely feels like okay i'm making progress here i'm, I'm changing the world uh yeah. derek does does it remind you of any other uh games that you've played uh like how would you relate it to other other games for someone who hasn't played uh noony noony nuki I hear it's a lot like I've never played any of the Pokemon games, but I hear it's a bit like Pokemon. A, a large part of the game is going and capturing monsters and using them in battle. Uh, the game does a really good job. I mean, you spend hours uh, before you've unlocked the full tactical battle system. It's very, you know, I'm playing like this for a little while, and now I'm going to throw another thing at you, and now I'm going to throw another thing at you, and it, it paces it out so well that you never feel like, you know, battle's a little slow, and when that next piece comes, it always, you know, you're ready to take that that jump um for me i guess because the overworld map it rhyme, reminds me a lot of the final fantasy um games you get on your chocobo and you kind of ride around a landscape and, and look around mm-hmm. um but people that have played I, I think the monster hunters or pokemon probably think it's more like that jason have you played any of those yes i've played all of those uh however uh it's yeah, it's like Pokemon, I guess, in a way, just sheer collectability, because it's not, I don't know, it's got kind of a strange combat system. I like it, but it's just kind of, it's hard to describe. It's more like uh, Tales of Vesperia uh, is what it reminds me of, of live-action bits, but it's all timed. Uh, so it's it's kind of... It's kind of interesting, but what, what do you mean uh, live-action bits, but it's all timed, McMaster? Like they're, you're running around. Uh, avoiding attacks or performing attacks, but but it's not like you're it's not a Twitch game, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, like, the combat you mean? Like it's not right. turn-based right. combat, right? It, it's one of those like yeah, kind of live actiony, but everything's on the timer. It's not uh, based on how fast you can jam like the X button. So it, it's kind of interesting, but there is that another layer strategy where all of the different little dudes you can summon and, and stuff. They all have different abilities and different weaknesses and strengths. So throwing them in at the right time can make all the difference in the world. Uh, I thought, and I thought it was really brilliant that even though each of the uh, familiars that you have, each of these creatures that you have fight for you, you can fight in the battle, you can have the creatures fight in the battle, um, have different abilities, uh, you all share the same hit points. So it's not simply that this guy's getting beat up, so I'm switching this guy uh, in. If we're getting beat up, we are getting beat up. We're, we're you know, we're close to death. And it doesn't matter. Now, I'm going to switch my defensive guy in because I'm really low um, so he can, you know, take uh, for a while and, and, and not lose damage as quickly. Or I might want to put my healer in so I can try to heal us back up again. Um, but that makes it feel, even though I'm switching guys in left and right, I always feel like, you know, it's, it's one battle and it's, it's that one hit point meter that I'm watching going down cool. and coming up again, which is neat. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's like uh, some of the boss fights, uh, because your character has access to, like, such high damage spells, uh, pretty quickly, uh, I, I would run around, you know, do whatever, take a few shots, and when the boss would get near you, yeah, you can throw out your defensive one. And certainly, uh, you have certain characters that can certainly take a beating better than your character can. So, uh, yeah, there is that, uh, it's a, it, it's certainly a game of timing. You know, just have to watch it. 
Let me let me ask you guys this, both of you. Uh, for me, when I'm playing a video game like, like an RPG, um, it, it's competing with the time I spend uh, like watching movies or reading books, like other narrative experiences. So when I run into a really long RPG, uh, one of the things I really want is a, a compelling a, a narrative. I really want to be hooked by who are these characters, what are they doing, what do they want, what happens to them, you know, how do they change, what uh, what's what's the relationship among them, um, and that for me is the difference between uh, the Final Fantasy games that I've tried, where I couldn't care less about any of that stuff and it completely bounces off me, and Xenoblade Chronicles, where I completely got sucked in by that. I felt like the developers really acknowledged that relationships amongst characters are a huge driving force for the game they wanted to make. Um, how does uh, Nunukupu rate on that scale? Uh, well, I'll say that uh, if you're a fan of the Studio uh, Ghibli stuff, um, there's, I mean, it, it's it develops like one of their movies in a way. So, I mean, the characters are very well, they're they're, they're pretty well written. I mean, if if you're into that uh, into that type of movie, uh, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, it it, it builds a lot of interesting multifaceted relationships, uh, as far as I can tell. That's selling me, Derek. Is that is that an aspect of it working for you as well? Yeah, yeah. If you can um, get behind the, the kind of the, the culture of the game, uh, if that appeals to you, then yeah, it does it very well. It's definitely very good storytelling. Um, but you have to be in for the very Japanese, very Studio Ghibli version of watching these, you know, prepubescent kids run around and save the world. If you can swallow that, then yeah, yeah, it's all it's all good. Stuff. It's made by a movie studio. I mean, a movie studio directed that, so. It's good. If you liked um, Spirited Away, I would yeah. recommend it. Yeah. Okay, uh, how can I get it to work on my Xbox 360 now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, if you get a PlayStation 4, oh, then you still won't be able to play it. Yeah. <laughs> See, now that's just a shame. Yeah, now Tom's, Tom goes through PlayStation 3s like I go through Xbox 360s. And he goes through Xbox 360s, so I don't know what yeah. I'm talking about. But. A lot of turnover in this house, yeah. All right, Derek, uh, so your game of the week is uh, New Cookie Noonie. Uh, the Scarlet White Witch's Fever, or so, actually, what is the subtitle? It's got one that I think it's. I believe it's Wrath of the White Witch. Wrath of the White Witch. And, and for reals, what does uh, Nino Kuni mean? Does anyone know? Why is it called that? Nino Nuki, uh, uh, Nino Kuni, yeah, yeah, oh, Nino. <laughs> but the, the actual. So, um, I mean, the, second, I kind of second I have, country. So it's second it's, country. It literally means second country, but it's. It's a play on uh, another world. So it's but you know like, what you might have you might have explained this to me before, McMaster, or someone did because I, I like that. Uh, okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Last time when we talked about it, uh, yeah, I, I mentioned the fact that you go between dimensions, right, uh, to solve puzzles, uh, which is is pretty cool. There, it's it's interesting at least. So, uh, yeah. All right, cool. So uh, that's your your game of the week, Derek. Good pick. Uh, I guess I wouldn't know. I haven't played it, but. Uh, McMaster, what do you have to follow on that? What is your pick for uh, Game of the Week? Hold on, let me guess, McMaster. Uh, World of Warcraft, Mists of Pandaria, levels 30 through 40. Well, sort of, levels 85 through 89. <laughs> you really, you did not max out a character in Mists of Pandaria, McMaster? No, I have not. I'm very close. Good uh, lord. <sighs> dude, I had characters from before. I didn't start. At the beginning, so I'm just, I, I'm, I only had to gain five levels. So it's all right. Like, you know, you could be playing Guild Wars 2, McMaster. 
I could be. Have they added anything recently? Yes, they add they add stuff all the time. I hear people talking about Guild Wars 2, and they use terms that I don't even know what they are because they're constantly adding new stuff in that game. I don't know, because I haven't touched it in a couple of months. People who are playing it are enjoying all this cool new stuff, so when they talk about it, I don't know what they're saying. Uh, it's that evol- it's, It evolves that quickly, McMaster. Well, are you, have you, you haven't touched it in a couple of months, uh, so I'm, no, I'm not I, going I, there. I'm not going. I might. I might. All right. Yeah. So, McMaster, then, what is your game of the week? If it, are you seriously going to choose yeah. World of Warcraft: Mists of Pandaria? Yeah, because we didn't really talk about it last week. Not really, so, all right. I'm going to take a nap. Wake me up when you're done talking oh, about it. God. No, I'm kidding. All right. So, tell me, McMaster, <laughs> what is making uh, Mists of Pandaria work so well for you? Is it the pet battles? Are you just enjoying the gardening? Uh, do you like panda bears? What What's making this work for you? All of the above. Now, I haven't, uh, I've done very little of the gardening. I think some of the quests very early on had you do it, and I, I ended up going into a dungeon instead and screwed up the timing, so I just dropped it. Uh, and I haven't done any of the pet stuff yet, um, and I've only played a panda a bit. But um, I like what they've done with the game with their focus on speed and a uh, little upkeep. Uh, required to stay, I guess, competitive. Uh, they, they've opened a lot of the content up to people as well as made it intriguing for the more hardcore players to go uh, the, a bit further. So uh, what they've done is most of the dungeons that you do in this uh, expansion, and uh, if you haven't played in a while, there's a dungeon finder, which just puts you with some random people, and you run through a dungeon and get experience, yay. Uh, but the um, the thing they've done with this one is basically all the dungeons in the, in the basic dungeon finder you can do in less than half an hour, for the most part. Uh, you get some decent loot, and all the loot is now um, tailored for your character. So it's not uh, not all of it, but like quest loot is. I mean, it's still random drops in the dungeons. Uh, but yeah, loot is more tailored for your characters from the, uh, the quest, etc. And um, it kind of takes you through a journey through, I think, the difficulty levels, because you go through regular raids, then you can queue for heroic raids at a certain level, which are harder, I mean, not raids, dungeons, which are harder versions of the same dungeon with better gear. Then you can do a raid finder now, which has a weaker version of some of the raid stuff, uh, but it's also accessible to people that don't have a giant guild for raiding. And then you can gear up from that and try to go on to the more advanced stuff, which requires pre-built groups and everything. Um, but uh, just it shows over the years that you know, Blizzard has learned a lot with their quest design and their world design. Uh, leads you through the world very efficiently. They... Uh, they show everything off, and, uh, you know, they do have that, that Blizzard style so that you can't really deny. Uh, McMaster, when did World of Warcraft come out? God, the dawn of time. What is it, 2004, 2005, something like that. So your game of the week oh, God. is an eight-year-old game. I don't know. I just, hold on. I'm just doing some math here. I'm not, I'm not saying that to criticize you. I just want to do some quick math. No, yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> you know, that's not your strong suit, Tom. Let's, let's, let's leave the math to me. Uh, uh, Derek Paxton, how do you feel about Jason McMaster playing, wasting his time playing Mists of Pandaria? Uh, uh, 
I am all for PC gaming in any form. I, I can't get into MMOs. I can't do it. I tried the Star ah. Wars game because I heard it was really story-based, and, and that's the piece that, just oh. like you said, it gets me into the role-playing game. So I played uh, BioWare's game, and okay. I really had fun for, for a good eight, ten hours, and then I got into the place where I was just like, I would either have to group up with people, and I'm, I'm not a big fan of people, um, or I'd, I'd just die and die, and, and, and then I was done. Or i just running between places. Oh, no, I have to go there, so I'm going to have to run for five minutes. And, yeah, and, well, that was, uh, was, that's, was one over. The, that's one of the giant, giant issues I have with that game, the Star Wars, is the map design is absolutely gigantic most of the time for absolutely no reason. <laughs> yeah, that's really bothersome. Uh, McMaster, can you guess what game I'm going to tell Derek he should have played instead? Oh, I bet it's Auto Assault. I bet that's what you're going for, right? That's, <laughs> I, it's an NCSoft thing, right? Is it, is it <laughs> Guild Wars? Lineage? I mean, I just I, I hate to sound so predictable, and I'm nothing if not predictable, but I just really feel like those guys at ArenaNet solved so many traditional problems with MMOs in Guild Wars. It, and one of them, Derek, is this uh, kind of drive for a narrative um, that some folks looked for in Star Wars Old Republic. You know, there's story-based missions in Guild Wars 2, and they're nothing great. Some of them are actually flat-out awful. But there are other bits of storytelling narrative you can find as you move around the world. Um, I, I, and, and just as far as MMOs go, I mean, McMaster, I'm glad you're having fun in World of Warcraft. I know you're doing it to, like, connect with an old friend. I, I really think that's cool, like, no joke. Um, but I just don't think I could go back to some of the traditional MMO mechanics after seeing what arena net did, did with guild wars 2 i kind of feel like they kind of ruined a lot of mmos for me world of um, warcraft has done a lot of stuff too though that's that's years. a fair point mcmaster it has changed a lot i know and i i'm talking about it without having tried it in it's been what two years so that, that's a very fair point McMaster. Have, have you did you uh, did you ever do the cataclysm stuff Oh, yeah, yeah, that was the last time I played, and I loved the way they reworked the world there. That, yeah, that was a hugely odd. pleasant surprise, and I enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, yeah, they've, uh, like, it's it's strange, because they've streamlined that game so severely over the last couple of years, uh, to the point where you don't have a talent tree anymore. Right. You have, yeah, you have, like, a choice of three talents per every 15 levels. So it's, it's just really bizarre. So you, you kind of just... You, you choose a profession, and it gives you certain skills, and then you choose those talents to modify that, and then they have this glyph system. So it's actually a lot lot simpler, huh. I think. Guess what, guess what game that reminds me of, McMaster? What's that? Guild Wars 2. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, I just, I mean, that's kind of the thing you have to do with, not have to do, but that's one of the new things in MMOs is allowing that kind of flexibility. Uh, you know, make, build your own class and, you know, you're not committed to one play style just because you're a cleric or, or whatever. Uh, so. We do have a couple people here at uh, Stardock that are playing it and, and just uh, always singing its praises that they just love it, including somebody who's who just wasn't a video game player, our, uh, our uh, uh, Brad's executive assistant. She just doesn't play video games, and she's hooked on it, so that's that's got to be good. And, uh, now, when you say the, it, Derek, do you mean uh, Guild Wars or, or World of Warcraft? Guild Wars, Guild Wars. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh, McMaster. No, so go ahead, so, so somebody, I mean, that must be kind of cool, somebody who's not into video games to see her responding to, hey, this is cool, this works for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- there's the other side of it. She works at a gaming company, and she's like, "Hey, I finally found a game I like. It's not one of ours, but hey, it's really <laughs> awesome." <laughs> like, okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, all right, well, Derek, uh, roll up a character in Guild Wars, and uh, me and McMaster will uh, will walk yeah. you through it. Uh, awesome. <laughs> I don't uh, all right. Do a pay expansion. Guild Wars? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I know there's a big uh, revision. There's the latest revision they're talking about is in February. Oh, it is February. Uh, you know what? I, I've been out of the Guild Wars 2 loop for a while, which is something... So Guild Wars is one of those games, I presume we all have these games, where there, there's not a week that goes by that I don't think at least two or three times, you know, I should start playing that again. Uh, right. Even though I may I may never do it. I mean, maybe there, I mean, don't we all have those games that we think, sure. that, I'm going to sit down and play that again, damn it. Uh it just kind of eats away at the edges of your brain. You're playing something else, thinking, you know, I should be playing Game X instead. So for Guild Wars 2, has it's been that for me for a while. Uh, uh, I have a bunch of games, a ton of games like that on my Steam games list. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get in there and finish that campaign. I'm totally going to do it. No, McMaster, you've got your World of Warcraft character to level up. you got to get your panda oh, to level 89 or whatever it is now. Yeah, so. No, he's not a panda. You don't have a panda? I do. He's only like level fifteen or sixteen. So yeah, you need to work on that, McMaster. You. Oh yeah, I mean, you can sneeze and get level fifteen now. So I mean. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, Jason T. McMaster picking uh, 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 an an MMO from two thousand four as his game of the week. Uh, All right. Well, I'm going to break this trend of you guys playing your crazy little uh, RPGs. I'm going to pick for my game of the week a hardcore shooter. Uh-oh. Here's the deal, though. It's not my game of the week because I like it. Um, uh, so a new game that just came out this week is uh, Crisis 3, um, which uh, I, 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 I really – you can't play Crisis 3 without admiring the tech because it does look fantastic. I mean, it's definitely these guys know how to do an engine that shows off higher-end PCs. And I haven't seen this on the, the 360. I've played it on a really nice PC mm. the whole time thinking, good Lord, how are they going to do this on a 360? You know, what sort of compromises are they going to have to make? So uh, it looks great. Um, but that said, my response to a game looking great these days is usually this. Who cares? I mean, I, I, I so if a, if a game has really nice graphics... A lot of times, like, it, that bounces off me. I mean, I prefer clever art design or, or kind of a different environment. The fact that Crisis 3 looks fantastic means almost nothing to me. I mean, it's this cool, overgrown, post-apocalyptic city. It's the same kind of thing you might have seen in Enslaved, uh, a game that Ninja Theory did, um, where they had a lot the, – their resources, you know – that they were using, it looked a lot less lush. I mean, they were having to make a lot more shortcuts visually, whatever, but they created that same kind of environment. So when I'm playing Crisis 3 and I'm seeing that same kind of environment and it looks so much better, that's awesome, but I've kind of seen it in a better game already. Um, So anyway, it looks great. I couldn't care less. Uh, And so instead what happens is that as I'm playing it, I'm particularly disappointed in three things that I want to bring up. Uh, the first thing is that for all this great tech and for all the pretty solid gunplay that they do, the Crisis games fit the same overarching pattern every time. And I think I'm really disappointed they're not doing anything to mix it up. And the pattern goes like this. 
You're fighting against human opponents. You're fighting against human opponents. You're fighting against human opponents. Oh, a twist. You're fighting against aliens. You're fighting against aliens. You're fighting against aliens. Oh, a great big terrible, clunky, awkward boss fight. Game over. Yay. That's what they've done with all four Crisis games. Because there was a Crisis, there was an expansion. No, you're right. I mean, it's not like... God, I'm tired of the aliens. And the thing is, that like that... I, I kind of, that was a cool pattern the first time, is get halfway through and then shift the paradigm, but there's a certain point where it becomes a template. It's like a cookie-cutter overarching structure for the game, uh, and it, it just got tedious for me. I, I, Do you I know what it needs, Tom? What does it, what does it need, Derek? Tell me. <laughs> a zombie apocalypse. Uh, uh, so right. <laughs> so right. <laughs> <laughs> Because the thing is, like that would I would totally be up for that. I don't know that the crisis engine could handle that many zombies, though. Uh, who knows? Uh, so that's the first point of disappointment is that they've they've created this template. They're not doing anything to break out of it. Uh, the second thing that, that I'm disappointed is I do like the basic gunplay uh, because they've done a good job folding in these suit powers. You know, you can have stealth, you can have armor, you can have super strength. Uh, is there one more? I think it's those three things. Uh, you've got a limited sort of pool of, of mana. Um, so I like how that mixes up the gunplay. They do some really, really nice gun porn with giving you cool quasi-futuristic guns with modular options for changing how they work, the kinds of ammo. There's a, there's a pretty cool bow in here. Um, but one of the things they add in Crisis 3 is a, a kind of a skill tree, you might say, for suit upgrades. And at first, this looks awesome. You have four slots, and you can only put a certain power in each slot. And each power, you can do things over the course of the game to upgrade that power. Like, you know, get get ten headshots to upgrade your aim steady, your recoil reduction. Uh, it's kind of this in-game challenge that you do to upgrade a power. So at first blush, that looks awesome. However, I think it's really poorly integrated in that most of the upgrades are, are pretty much useless. Uh, there are a few optimal things you want to put in each slot, and so the result is what looks like a skill tree becomes kind of busy work to get the most efficient build going. I think it's just a bad example of a skill tree and, a, and of encouraging different choices and different kind of character builds. Uh, I think that kind of fell down on the job there. So in theory, I like that. In practice, I think it didn't work. Uh, that's the second thing I'm disappointed with. So compared to, like, Dead Space 3 and the ability to... I haven't played either one, but the ability to change your gun up and do different things with your guns, how do they compare? See, Derek, you've, you've done exactly what really makes it difficult for me to appreciate Crisis 3, because Dead Space 3... I mean, the the generosity in that weapon-building system, the weapon progression system, and that included progressions to your suit, uh, was so addicting... I mean, that has pulled me. Literally, I've played through Dead Space 3 uh, almost three and three-quarters times. I'm, I'm on my fourth playthrough. That has pulled me through that game so relentlessly. And in Crisis 3, the equivalent of that, those suit upgrades, I was done with that after looking at it. You know, I was like, okay, I'm going to slot these things and they'll, these four things, and then they'll level up, and then I'm done with that. That just went out the window within a few hours of play. And in Dead Space 3, it's going strong after, you know, 30-odd hours. Um, and that, that's, that's a tough thing, too, is when a game comes out that does something really, really well, and then another game comes out that doesn't do it anywhere nearly as well, it really suffers all the more in comparison when you've been playing that other game that does it well. Um, 
So, so thanks for reinforcing. Thanks for helping kill uh, Crisis Three for me, Derek. <laughs> uh, so let's see. The third thing I'm disappointed in. Uh, they do have a really nice uh, multiplayer mode with some with uh, multiplayer support with some cool modes. They've got the standard Call of Duty unlocking system where I play through and oh I leveled up I can unlock a new toy oh but I'm this much closer to unlocking something else let me play some more oh now I've unlocked that and now I can get one of these two things oh let me play a little bit more to get that other thing uh, it really pulls you through very effectively I really like the multiplayer in this um, however I have to say. Good RPG-style multiplayer these days is like good graphics. It, it's a dime a dozen. You know, you can pick pretty much, not any game, but so many different games have this really good addictive multiplayer that's based on unlocking stuff. McMaster, you and I played a whole lot of Max Payne 3, and that's yes. a lot of what made that work. Um, sure. so, so I sort of feel like what I, I'm just a little disappointed that the reason that I like Crisis 3 and that I would keep playing it would apply to pretty much any game that has decent, passable multiplayer support. This is just kind of the bare minimum to make multiplayer work. And in the, at the end of the day, I'm doing the same kind of things I, would, I could be doing in Call of Duty. You know, I'm playing uh, Crisis 3, I'm leveling my dude up, and I'm, I start thinking, wait a minute... Maybe I should go level up my Call of Duty guns instead. Uh, it just feels so familiar. And you could pick any one of a half dozen good shooters and recreate that experience in that shooter. Um, so those are the three things I'm disappointed in. Uh, I just feel like these days a good shooter needs some kind of a distinctive twist or design identity. I think of things like Darkness 2, you know, the crafting in Dead Space 3, uh, the openness in Borderlands, uh, even the kind of the replayability in Black Ops single player. Um, there are some really cool twists going on in shooters these days, and I'm just disappointed that Crisis 3 doesn't rise to that occasion. Uh, and it's a shame because Crytek, I kind of think of them as id these days. You know, they do great tech, and it's a shame that the game design doesn't quite live up to the level of the tech. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> So there you go. My game of the week, uh, and not because I'm hugely fond of it, uh, is uh, Crisis 3. You've played uh, Far Cry 3, haven't you, Tom? I have, yes. Uh, and I, I quite like some of the systems in that. I liked, I liked a lot of things about Far Cry 3. Uh, you know, w- where it really fell down for me, Derek, was that whole narrative l- level, I think. Uh, did, did you play Far Cry 3? Yeah, I don't play many first-person shooters, but I did enjoy, um, I played Hitman, which isn't technically a first-person, you know, it's a little different. Um, but I like the ones that have, a, that, that are a little bit of a different take on it. And I enjoyed Far Cry 3, but I just enjoyed kind of hunting on the island and checking every place out, and it felt like a very real place to explore. And I like that a lot more than, than, uh, run and gun isn't, isn't for me. I'm too slow and feeble, and I just uh, get frustrated with it. But exploring that island, I, I had a blast with. Well, well partly it's uh, run and gun in a corridor environment, you know, because for all the the cool wide levels that Crisis 3 has, it's ultimately a corridor thing. You know, you're going from waypoint to waypoint. Um, and Far Cry 3 just did a really good job with these different systems, with the crafting and the collectibles and, and making it clear when you were going to unlock or earn something at a given point. Um, they really did a good job tying the systems together. And I think that's one of the weaknesses of Crisis 3 is they've got these systems that don't tie together very well. Yeah. Um, what was the other one you mentioned, uh, Derek? Hitman. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Hitman, is it Absolution, the most recent one? Yes. 
How did that work for you? I don't think we've talked to anyone who's played that, and I haven't played it. Yeah, I haven't um, I really like the style of it a lot. I really wanted to like it. Um, the problem is I'm just not good at it. So I got up to the hotel level, which is three or four in. They have some easier ones at the beginning. You have to uh, kill some guy in a crowded marketplace. And it's really neat to be you know, kind of an assassin guy who's kind of just blending through the crowds and, and taking a look around and deciding, okay, how am I going to do this, which I really enjoy the stealth aspects of it. But when I got to the level that was uh, a very crowded hotel and, and um, I just I died and died and died. Even on I was playing on the easy level. I'm just it's, I don't think it's even the game's fault. I'm sure the game is awesome. Um, I couldn't play it because I'm just not that good at, at this sort of game. So I didn't get very far in it. A lot of those the Hitman games, which I've always kind of admired in a way, but a, a lot of it seems to involve trying to read the mind of the developer. You know, what does the developer want me to do here? What what hoops am I supposed to jump through? And I I've, I've hit a lot of dead ends in those games as well. Uh, what they were pushing, or they were talking a lot about their their crowd technology in Hitman. Like, does Hitman do really cool big crowds? Yeah, that w- the one level I played. It's a very crowded Chinese marketplace. People are talking and having their little side conversations, and it, it's kind of cool because you're going down an alleyway into the marketplace, and then you open up these public doors into it, and it's just it's kind of a little overwhelming if you're used to what's possible with PC games, and you, you kind of see this big crowd of people going back and forth and shopping and talking, and and you're kind of pushing through shoulder to shoulder against the guys, and it's it is it's a really neat technology. It really feels like okay. I'm there, and I don't need to hide or be stealthy because I'm standing in this crowd of people, right. and they do a really good job of keeping focus on your character, but you still feel like, you know, I'm kind of, you know, hidden back here with all the rest of these guys. It's, it feels like a very real place, which is neat. There's like six or seven different ways to kill the guy you want to kill, and you get to, you know, look right. around a little bit, pick out the way you're going to try to go for, and uh, uh, see if you can pull it off. You know, I will say just those crowds alone makes me tempted to, to jump into the Hitman games because that's something that I think gets short shrift too often. And when it's done well, I don't know that we appreciate it enough. Like the crowds in the Assassin's Creed games, uh, the, the crowds of zombies in, in Dead Rising, uh, I just love when you can get that many characters on screen at once and it really feels like crowded and, and tight. Uh, I miss that in other games. You yeah. Know. Uh, all right. So, uh, by the way, uh, you mentioned – so. Hitman is published by uh, Square Enix. Uh, Square Enix has another game coming out shortly. I won't say what it is. Uh, I think I'm probably not allowed to. But I will say, if you enjoy the bow in uh, Crisis 3, or if you enjoyed the bow, which was pretty cool, in um, Far Cry 3, both games with bows, Square Enix has a game coming out early next month, which has, I think, my favorite use of a bow in a video game, and it is an awesome game to boot. So uh, those are some clues. I can't say what it is, but I cannot wait to freaking talk about this game that comes out on March 5th from Square Enix, whose name I cannot say because I am so psyched about how good this thing is. Uh, and stay tuned for more on that. But first, next week, uh, McMaster, how do you feel about... I hear McMaster Googling what comes out on March 5th from Square uh, Enix. <laughs> oh, no, I know. Uh, McMaster, how do you feel about um, Metal Gear Ra- Salt, no, Rising Revengeance? I could care less. All right, well, you're going to have to next week because that's what we're going to be talking. We have uh, a genuine, uh, I think he does describe himself as a fanboy of the Metal Gear series. Uh, He's coming on to tell me how awful I am at Metal Gear Rising Revengeance and why we should care about it. Uh, Is it a single player? No, 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 a single player. Oh, Uh, well, then I almost cared. 
<laughs> no, no, no multiplayer in Revengeance. Uh, so next week, join us for our Metal Gear Rising Revenge. Actually, it's all things Metal Gear episode. We will also be discussing our uh, games of the week and news of the week then. Uh, Derek, thank you for hanging out with us today. I wish you the best of luck with uh, Legendary Heroes. Um, and, and thanks for telling us about it today. Oh, it's been fun, fun talking to you guys. Thanks for having me. And we will see everyone here next week. kind of hard to figure out but can you guess why i picked this song uh it's got hero in it i was hoping it was a reference to legendary heroes there you go very good all right i assume the game you can't talk about is is uh tomb raider Uh, i can't say (laughs) uh derek that's two gold stars you get very good Yeah.